Dog Works Radio is sponsored by Alaska Dog Works. Check out their website at alaskadogworks.com. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. I'm Alex Stein, and you're listening to I Did a Rod Through the Decades from Mushing Radio, Episode 2, the 1970s. After the relative failure of the 1969 Seppala Memorial Race, the momentum Joe Reddington Sr. and Dorothy Page had built seemed gone. But Reddington stuck to his dream of running a race on the Iditarod Trail and had promised to deliver a purse of $50,000, twice as large as the 1967 race. For years, he would share his vision with anyone who would listen because he never knew who could help make this dream a reality. Reddington approached local business leaders who were encouraging, but stopped short of pledging money. Reddington noticed that people were confused about the idea of racing to Iditarod or to Iditarod and back, and no one seemed to know or care where Iditarod really was. But people got excited when he'd mentioned Nome. After all, Nome had been the destination of the 1925 serum run, and linking the new race to that larger-than-life effort in people's minds would help draw attention to the race and help attract sponsors. To keep the spirit of the race alive, Reddington organized a series of symbolic rallies in 1970, 1971, and 1972, taking mushers and dog teams out along the Iditarod Trail. These were cooperative events rather than races, and they also served as scouting trips to ascertain what kind of condition the trail was in and how much work it might take to clear sections of the trail. The rallies often did not go very far, but they helped keep the idea of this race alive in the minds of the mushing community. The original Iditarod Trail Committee dissolved itself, worried that they might be sued if there wasn't enough money to pay the guaranteed $50,000 purse. The Aurora Dog Mushers Club also distanced itself from Reddington, thinking the idea of a guaranteed purse would doom the race. Undeterred, Reddington set up a new Iditarod Trail Committee with Tim Johnson and Gleo Hyuk, two school teachers from Wasilla. These three, along with Reddington's wife Vi, became officers of the newly incorporated organization. At the time, Many mushers did not believe it was possible for dogs to run that far. Most mushers had been exposed only to sprint races, such as the North American and Ferrandi races, that were all around 25 miles. But many native elders assured mushers that dogs could run further, perhaps much, much further. Reddington continued to court local businesses, pressing leaders to help guarantee that he'd have the $50,000 purse in hand by the time the race started in March 1973. At the same time, Reddington lobbied lawmakers and the governor. And in 1972, 
dog mushing was declared the official sport of Alaska. Reddington reached out to Howard Fairley, a musher living in Nome who had one of the few dog teams left in the area. Reddington said he'd recruited some local mushers from Anchorage and the Matsu Valley and asked Farley's help in recruiting mushers from around Nome. Farley agreed and reconstituted the Nome Kennel Club, a long dormant organization that used to run the All-Alaska Sweepstakes. Farley also recruited city officials to record times at the finish line and got them to agree to even have the finish line on Front Street in the middle of Nome. He also convinced the Nome Chamber of Commerce to support the race, and in a few months, he would raise $1,200 to pay for a trophy and various awards. As the race start approached, rumors spread that there was no money for the purse. This was correct. Reddington was having trouble getting banks or businesses to cough up money. A local radio station owner gave Reddington a check for $50,000, and Reddington came to a meeting with mushers who were threatening to pull out of the race. He held up the check, and this stifled the rebellion. Of course, the check was not good, and Reddington had been told under no circumstances was he to deposit it. Finally, Colonel Marvin Mucktuck Marston pledged $10,000 worth of land in the Spinard section of Anchorage, hoping that that would encourage others to give to the race. Marston, who'd served in the so-called Eskimo Scouts during World War II, was a respected and influential Anchorage businessman. More importantly, Marston stunned some of the mushers by reporting that as a young man, he had easily run his dogs 40 miles per day and even had days where his dog teams could run more than 65 miles. This proclamation convinced a lot of mushers that they could race more than a thousand miles. More importantly, his donation made other businessmen agree to give money to the race. There have been, over the years, rumors that some businessmen were caught by Reddington and his partners in various gambling dens and houses of ill repute, and that it was fear of being exposed that made them donate to the race. It makes sense that a mythic race would have some larger-than-life rumors associated with it. So, let's just say that in the early 1970s, there was still a lot of the Wild West in much of Alaska, even in the relatively civilized big city of Anchorage. As for Joe Reddington, he didn't enter the first Iditarod. He was so consumed by organizational details of the first race and raising money that he had literally no time to run his dogs. And although he didn't want to admit it at the time, when the first dog teams left Anchorage, the $50,000 Reddington had guaranteed was not yet in the bank. Businessman Bruce Kendall had pledged to make up any difference between what Reddington raised and the $50,000, and he wound up co-signing a loan for $30,000. Kendall later came up with a scheme to get his money back. He sold 30 raffle tickets for $1,000 each to give away a prize of $15,000. A year later, he sold 500 other raffle tickets at $60 each to give away another prize. With those two raffles, 
Kendall got his money back. He later said he felt the race would be good for Alaska, that it would help inspire tourism and revive the spirit of the 1925 serum run. He was right on both counts. Army General Charles Geddes was familiar with Joe Reddington's work providing search and rescue dogs for the military. When Geddes heard about the plan for the first Iditarod, he was determined to help, even if he had to do so unofficially. As commander of Fort Richardson outside Anchorage, Geddes ordered a team of Army snow machiners to embark on a winter survival exercise that would take them across the Iditarod Trail from Anchorage to Nome. Not coincidentally, this was the exact route the race would take. 22 soldiers on snow machines became the first to ride the trail to Nome in decades. While the snow machiners were on the trail, Geddes and Reddington flew over them, monitoring the route. Although the snow machiners were able to help clear sections of the trail, it was soon hidden by fresh snow. Reddington had arranged for a few trail breakers to ride the trail on snow machines ahead of the dog teams, usually staying about 90 miles in front of the race leaders. Unfortunately, there was often new snow between when the snow machiners went through and when the dog teams got there, which made the trail rough going for mushers who often could see no evidence that trail breakers had been there at all. On March 3rd, 1973, 34 dog teams left from a starting line near Tudor Road in Anchorage on the way to their first checkpoint in Eagle River. Unlike modern Iditarods, where some describe the trail as a dog sled superhighway, the 1973 trail often required teams to go in front and break trail, sometimes by walking ahead in snowshoes. Many mushers in that first race weren't sure if they or anyone would be able to make it all the way to Nome. And this atmosphere led teams to cooperate with each other. More than one musher described the first race as more like a camping trip than a competition. Because the rules at the time allowed for teams with two mushers, there were two such teams in the 1973 race. The first Iditarod champion was Dick Walmerth from Red Devil, Alaska, finishing in just over 20 days. The Red Lantern winner, the last musher to finish the race, was John Schultz from Delta Junction, Alaska, who finished with a time of over 32 days and five hours. Wilmarth won $12,000, and by the time he got to Nome, all of the prize money was indeed in place. There was press coverage of the start of the race and some coverage during the race over Tundra Telegraph radio transmissions, but there was little information available to the public about what exactly was happening and who was where. Dorothy Page began producing Iditarod Trail annuals every year, starting just after the first race in 1973. She continued producing these publications every year until 1989 and was working on the 1990 edition when she died. Rick Swenson, the only musher to ever have won five Iditarods, said of Dorothy Page, she did more to promote dog sled racing and the Iditarod than any other person I've known. Finishing third in the 1973 Iditarod was Dan Seavey from Seward, Alaska. Seavey had come up to teach school in 1963 and become an Iditarod Trail fan after teaching Alaskan history and learning about the Iditarod Trail 
and the importance of dog sledding to Alaska. As happens with many mushers, it wasn't long before he acquired a few dogs of his own. Dan Seavey was one of the first mushers to sign up for the first Iditarod and was part of a core group who worked with Reddington to make the first race a reality. He would later serve on the board of the Iditarod Trail Committee for many years. Dan Seavey raced again in the 1974 race and finished fifth. After a long period of not competing, Seavey came back to run again in the 1997, 2001, and 2012 races. Today's race fans may know Dan Seavey as the father of Mitch, who won the Iditarod three times and is the oldest person ever to win Iditarod. Dan is also the grandfather of Dallas Seavey, who won the race four times and is the youngest person ever to win Iditarod. In addition, two of Dan Seavey's other grandsons have also finished Iditarod. In 2013, Dan Seavey published an account of the first Iditarod called The First Great Race and boasts that he's the only historian to write about the 1973 race who also competed. In Seward, Dan Seavey is infamous for winning a $5 bet with another teacher who wagered that Dan couldn't run his dog team through the school, including going up and down the stairs. Pro tip, don't bet against Dan Seavey. The race grew in 1974 with 44 teams entering and 26 finishing. That year's race included two women, Mary Shields and Lolly Medley. Although the race was open to female mushers, many felt that women wouldn't be able to compete in such a grueling and physically challenging event. Mary Shields finished 23rd in under 29 days. That was the only Iditarod she ever ran, and in 2010 she said she'd already done it, so she didn't see the point in repeating herself. She continued as a recreational musher, giving tours and writing a series of books including Sled Dog Trails, which chronicles her experience with dogs and being the first woman to finish the Iditarod. In 2017, Mary Shields was honored with winning the Women Who Dared Award. Lolly Medley finished the 1974 race in 24th place, 29 minutes behind Mary Shields. Medley also would make handcrafted dog harnesses, and in 1979, she convinced the Iditarod to begin awarding a special prize for the outstanding lead dog, the Lolly Medley Golden Harness Award, which is still awarded every year. For several years, Medley herself made the actual golden harness given out for that award. For the first two years, the race ran across the mudflats of the Cook Inlet on the way to Kinnick. The race was rerouted to avoid this crossing starting in the 1975 race because temperatures in the area often rose to near freezing, making it muddy and very challenging. Throughout the decades, the race route has changed from year to year. Checkpoints have been added and dropped, and the start and restart have been shifted many times. The Burled Arch that signifies the end of the Iditarod Trail sled dog race was the brainchild of Richard Red Fox Olson, 1974's Red Lantern winner. For the first two races, the end of the race was signified by a line drawn across the snow on Front Street in Nome using a packet of Kool-Aid. Olson felt underwhelmed by the time he finished and thought there should be more to signify such a great accomplishment than a faded line of Kool-Aid in the snow. When Olson returned home, he saw that his son had cut two large and somewhat 
symmetrical burls of wood. Out of these pieces of wood, Olsen carved the original burled arch, engraving on the wood the words, End of the Iditarod Dog Race, 1,049 miles, and Anchorage to Know. By fall 1974, the arch was finished. Wien Air Alaska arranged for the 5,000-pound arch to be disassembled and loaded into a plane where it was shipped to Nome and put back together with the help of Howard Farley, the Nome Lions Club, and local volunteers. Olson also donated an antique oil lantern, which would serve for many years as the widow's lamp. It would be lit when the race started and remain lit until the last musher on the trail finished. In March 1975, Emmett Peters, known as the Yukon River Fox, became the first musher to pass under the arch when he won, and he finished nearly a week faster than the previous winners. The Burled Arch would become an iconic symbol for the race, and although the original arch was replaced in 1999, the current Burled Arch closely resembles Olson's original and continues to welcome mushers across the finish line on Front Street in Nome. Raising money continued to be a problem for the race throughout the 1970s. Although oil had been found on Prudhoe Bay and a pipeline was being planned, the oil boom had not yet started. In early 1976, there were rumors that Atlantic Richfield was about to pull out of sponsoring the race. Many mushers and ITC members urged postponing the race for a year, but Joe Reddington instinctively knew that if they didn't run the 1976 race, it would be much harder to start it up again. After all, that had been his experience with the Centennial Race in 1967 and 1968. Reddington pushed hard to find a way to run the race no matter what, a philosophy that has guided the Iditarod over the years. Governor Jay Hammond, who was very familiar with the boom and bust cycles of Alaska, proposed a unique way of handling money that would come in from the oil boom. Hammond knew that it would be a mistake to spend lavishly when the oil money was at its peak, and instead came up with the idea of the permanent fund. Under Hammond's proposal, taxes from oil pumped out of Prudhoe Bay would be put into a professionally managed money fund. The principal from this fund would remain untouched, and the dividends could be paid out to Alaskans. To this day, the permanent fund dividend is a unique way for Alaskans to share in the prosperity of their state and every year since 1982, Alaskans have received a check, or in modern times, a direct bank deposit, in amounts that have ranged from $331 to more than $3,000. In the summer of 1977, a gigantic forest fire burned 345,000 acres in interior Alaska, approximately 530 square miles. For many years, the skeletons of dead trees in the area would snap in the bitter cold as temperatures dropped past 40 below zero. Tundra grass would freeze and grow hard, making passing through the area difficult. This charred and exposed area came to be known as the Farewell Burn. And since it is located in an area that gets little snowfall in the winter, many mushers would have to navigate their way around charred stumps and fallen tree limbs. Runners would often break and sleds would get banged up and sometimes ruined, passing through the farewell burn. The 1978 race 
saw Iditarod's first and only photo finish. Rick Swenson, the defending champion, and Dick Mackey were neck and neck coming down Front Street towards the Burled Arch. Mackey was clearly exhausted and running on fumes, but he managed to stay slightly ahead. Both teams entered the chute coming towards the finish line at the same time. By sheer force of will, Mackey, running alongside his team, got his lead dog to cross the finish line first. As soon as that happened, Mackey collapsed into the crowd. Meanwhile, Swenson's lead dog crossed the line a fraction of a second later, and Swenson made it past the finish line before Mackey. The crowd at the Burled Arch was thrilled but confused. It wasn't immediately clear who the winner should be. Race officials huddled and reached a quick decision. Race Marshal Dick Tozier delivered the verdict. Mackey had won. In horse racing, he noted, the winning horse is the one whose nose crosses the finish line first, not the one whose rear end crosses first. Swenson would have to wait until 1979 to become the first person to win the Iditarod twice. Later, in 1978, the Iditarod Trail was officially designated as a National Historic Trail, one of only 16 in the United States. Here is a list of the Iditarod champions from the 1970s. 1973, Dick Wilmerth with lead dog Hotfoot in 20 days, 0 hours, 49 minutes, and 41 seconds. 1974, Carl Huntington with lead dog Nugget in 20 days, 15 hours, 2 minutes, and 7 seconds. 1975, Emmett Peters with lead dogs Nugget and Sugar in 14 days, 14 hours, 43 minutes, and 45 seconds. 1976, Gerald Riley with lead dogs Puppy and Sugar in 18 days, 22 hours, 58 minutes, and 17 seconds. 1977, Rick Swenson with lead dogs Andy and Old Buddy in 16 days, 16 hours, 27 minutes, and 13 seconds. 1978, Dick Mackey with lead dogs Skipper and Shrew in 14 days, 18 hours, 52 minutes, and 24 seconds. 1979, Rick Swenson with lead dogs Quiz and Bowl in 15 days, 10 hours, 37 minutes, and 47 seconds. Next week on I Did a Rod Through the Decades, the 1980s. It's morning in America in a decade when dynasties are built up and broken apart. Fierce storms and wrong turns cost more than one champion the race. Alaska, where men are men and women win the Iditarod, and much, much more. For Iditarod Through the Decades, I'm Alex Stein. Did you know that Alaska Dog Works trains service dogs for those in need throughout North America? Each and every service dog that is trained through the Lead Dog Service Dog Program and Michelle Forda winner team has an individual training plan. We train for autistic, mobility, psychiatric, and PTSD for our soldiers for service work. 
If you know of someone that may need a service dog, please take a moment and check out Alaska Dog Works on social media and at alaskadogworks.com. If you like our podcast, there are a few things you can do. You can take a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You can also check out all of our DogWorks Radio sponsors and promotions in our show notes. Another thing you can do is go over to Facebook, like our Facebook page, and one last thing, please tell all of your friends by spreading the word about DogWorks Radio. Thank you so much for listening to us. We really appreciate you. DogWorks Radio is produced by Robert Forto. Logo art by Angry Squirrel Studios. DogWorks Radio is produced in conjunction with KVRF 89.7 in Palmer, Alaska. For dog training advice, you can contact Alaska DogWorks at 907-841-1686 or visit their website at alaskadogworks.com. If you have a show idea or would like to be a guest, please contact us by sending an email to live at dogworksradio.com.